Gresham College presents Indra's Pearls, Geometry and Symmetry by Professor Caroline Series from the University of Warwick. Um, so what I want to do this evening is indeed take you on a quick tour through this book, which, as Robin said, uh, I was one of the authors of, came out a few years ago now. So what I want to do is give you a sense of what's in the book and why we were interested, and a little bit at the end about the further vistas that it has, in fact, opened. So, to start with, before we go into the book, let me just introduce the main players. There's, uh, of course, myself and the other two authors. David Mumford, probably many of you know, is an extremely distinguished mathematician, winner of the Fields Medal, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Mathematics. His hobby is sailing, which is a rather nice picture, as you can see his town. Anyway, he was the kind of driving force behind the mathematical adventure that we undertook when we started to write this book. David Wright there, nice portrait painted by one of his daughters. Uh, when we started to write, well, when they started working on the book, David was actually himself a student at Harvard University, and David is the man behind really making a lot of the computer stuff work, the nitty-gritty of the computer programming, and if I forget to say it, let me say it now, he is the one who made the vast majority of the pictures and the movie clips which you're going to see throughout the talk. Uh, one further gentleman up here, I haven't mentioned, uh, Felix Klein was a professor of geometry in the University of Göttingen in Germany. In fact, he was responsible for building up the mathematics department in Göttingen to, I think it's right to say, probably the leading mathematics department in the world around the turn of the last century. And it remained in that state until uh, gradually fell to pieces as Hitler came into power. Uh, he wrote a particularly famous book with this long title, Lectures on the Theory of Automorphic Functions, which is a book about a certain kind of symmetry he was interested in. Automorphic functions are sort of higher dimensional analogues of things like sine and cosine functions or elliptic functions, if you've come across those. But I don't want to talk about the functions today. His book contained a lot of remarkable pictures. Um, this is an actual copy of one of the pictures he or his students drew by hand. <laughs> and so what I want to explain this evening, and what in fact our book is about, was to understand what these pictures are, pictures like this, how you actually, rather than try and calculate such a thing by hand, how you could go about programming a computer to make the pictures and then exploring the results. And this is the mathematical adventure which we embarked on and which we wrote about in the book. So David Mumford's idea, really it began in the early 80s, he was aware of this old work of Klein, and it has been very important in mathematics for various reasons. At that time, the possibility of programming graphics in a fairly serious way 
was just coming in and his idea was let's try and put all this stuff on the computer, we can look at all these pictures, study them and explore what we get. So what are Klein's pictures? The first thing I have to do is tell you what the pictures are about. So they're made by repeating the same action over and over again, which you very likely come across at something called iteration. So what kind of action? Well, we're going to be doing some kind of transformation of the plane. So you can think of it, we put in the coordinates of a point, x, y coordinates. So here's a very simple example. Put in x, y coordinates, and we're going to take x and replace it by x plus 1 and keep the y value the same. That means we just shift everything over to the right. So I can write the thing down in coordinates, but actually I want to think about it more dynamically or visually. So here we are visually. This is one of David Wright's pictures. David Wright, um, for the purposes of illustrating our book, invented this character, Dr. Stickler, who I should probably put on the first slide. But, um, so here we are, Dr. Stickler is here, and he's just getting shifted one unit to the right, <coughs> and then here he is, shifted one unit to the left. Very simple, x, y coordinates. So that's a mapping. So Klein was interested in repeating things like this, but a bit more complicated, not much more complicated, over and over and over again, and looking at what you got. So before I go on to what Klein was actually doing, in fact, in order to conveniently write down our formulas, it really helps to use complex numbers. So although you will kind of follow what I'm saying, I hope, if you don't know about complex numbers, let me just give a very brief uh, overview, which we do in our book. The book starts not supposing you know any of this. So <coughs> complex numbers are numbers which involve the square root of minus 1, which is usually written as i. If you're an engineer, you might write it as j. So we represent the point in the plane whose coordinates are x and y by x plus square root of minus 1 times y. Of course, there is no number which is the square root of minus 1. So we mathematicians just invented one. Extremely useful. So here's a way to think of a complex number. It's just an address which describes where you are in the plane. So here is Dr. Stickler at the point 0. Here are the numbers 1, 2, 3, minus 1, minus 2, minus 3. But up above him is i, square root of minus 1, 2i, 3i, and then the other points, just think of them like coordinates. And it's going to help us if we have a bit of shorthand for this. We're going to use the letter z is traditionally used as shorthand for x plus i, y. So this is... So instead of writing x, y goes to x plus 1, y, we just say z turns into z plus 1, and that means just move one unit to the right. If we go x, y, x, y plus 1, that means we go 1 upwards, so z turns into z plus i. So i is sort of like a vector. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. If you're not, don't worry too much, but it will explain a few of my formulas as I go along. So complex numbers, the beauty of complex numbers is that we can add and subtract them, but we can also multiply and divide them. Complex numbers are vectors, so they have a length and a direction. The length is usually written 
mod Z, two bars outside the Z, and there's an angle there. And the good thing is that if you multiply by a complex number, what does that mean? Well, it has the effect of expanding by a certain factor the length of the complex number and rotating by this angle that's called theta in this picture, the angle to the horizontal. So here is a picture. We've got nine blue circles there at different addresses, and we multiplied them by the complex number 1 plus i, and the effect is this is a vector whose length is square root of 2, if you work it out, and angle 45 degrees. So this square of blue things gets rotated by 45 degrees and expanded. So it's a very visual way. On the one hand, we can just write it in a, in a nice, simple formula. We're just going to multiply by something. But on the other hand, it means something geometrically. And that's very useful. So here is a picture. No one will be more pictures. Here we've got a red fox. And we're going to multiply him by various different complex numbers. If we just multiply him by, say, one and a half, he just gets bigger. And if we multiply him by a half, he gets smaller. But if we multiply him by i, he rotates around, he keeps the same size, but he goes around by 90 degrees. So multiplying by square root of minus 1 is multiplying by, is rotating by 90 degrees. So you can sort of very easily write down in a formula what you've done to the fox and you've manipulated him. Here's another picture, fox. So we start with the red fox, and here he's been multiplied by this number and rotated by this angle. And it turns out that's this rather peculiar complex number, but there he is being rotated and actually reduced in size if you multiply if you divide, you go the other way and he gets bigger and goes around in the other direction. So immediately, multiplying by complex numbers does something geometrical. And that, that's really what I want you to hold on to. So one more thing, and then we will have dealt with all the things Klein wanted to investigate. He also wanted to involve the transformation which sends the complex number z to the number 1 over z, that's a 1. Sorry, my slightly odd kind of 1 that came out there. So let's draw a picture here. So if we work out in complex numbers what this is, it's scaling by a certain factor and then reflecting in the horizontal axis. And I didn't have a very good picture of that, but this is a picture of what happens if you just scale by this factor. So this one turns into this one. This one turns into this one. So because the scaling, so what we're doing is we're taking a point to another point given by this formula. And so it depends where the point is, what the formula does. The scale factor depends on where you are. So you don't always scale by the same amount. So we get a rather odd, but nevertheless quite nice effect when we do this. And here it is written down for those who know complex numbers. This is what the actual formula is. Ah. Right, so if we put all these different types together, so I've very quickly gone through some different things you can do with complex numbers. You can 
Translate by adding, and you can rotate and expand or contract by multiplying, and you can divide, and that does something slightly more complicated. And put them all together, it means you can do anything like that. So you can start with an address and change it to this address. And these four numbers can be any numbers that you like, provided there's some proviso that makes things work out nice. Really what this means is you can do the thing backwards. You can invert it. And it turns out, why should I care about this? Well, it turns out that these kind of mappings are actually extremely important in mathematics. If you like, when you deal in complex numbers which are the basis for a huge amount of mathematics, they're the sort of right way of thinking about differential equations, they come into physics, right way of thinking about integration, lots of things, then you want to be able to change coordinates. And in a certain sense, these kind of mappings by this formula are the Um, these are the most uh, general kind of transformations that you can do that change coordinates in complex numbers. And they're often called Möbius maps, named after this gentleman here, August Möbius, who actually was the same Möbius uh, who gave his name to the Möbius band. I don't want to say he invented it, I'm sure other people had twisted bits of paper like that before, but in any way, here's the person whose name is attached to the Möbius band. Another name for a Möbius map is a linear fractional transformation, which you may have come across. Möbius maps, they've got some nice properties. They map circles to circles. This says that you should think of straight lines as being circles, in a certain sense. They're sort of like circles of infinite radius, so a couple of pictures on the left, sorry, my pointer's, oh, my pointer's back. Okay, so this little square grid here, if we do the right Möbius map to it, turns into this kind of curvilinear grid. So you can see angles haven't changed. These shapes have got 90 degree angles, and there are circles here and circles here. So it doesn't change very wildly, but it does distort things. And here's another picture. So, for example, this star shape here gets changed into this slightly sort of curvy star thing over here. So Möbius maps, first of all, they're very important in all sorts of ways in mathematics. And second of all, they have some nice geometrical properties. Well, Klein, so now I'm going on really to the second part of the story, Klein realized, in a sense following on from the work of Möbius, that he was interested in symmetry and he was trying to explain mathematically what symmetry was and he realized that if you had a collection of mappings of a certain kind, then you could think of symmetry as being the things that were not changed when you repeated things in this collection of mappings over and over again. So that's a bit abstract, but here is a picture. Since my co-authors were American, are American, this is the state of Iowa. And everybody knows that Iowa is um, 
fields and farms and trees, right? So every farm is the same. They all look, it's dead flat, they all look exactly the same, just on and on, mile after mile after mile, farm after farm after farm. And the thing about it is that if you shift the picture a whole number of units, up or down or right or left, you just see the same picture. You can't tell the difference. So you can think of symmetry as being just like that. This picture we say is symmetrical because if I shift it in a certain way, I just see exactly the same thing. And I can couch this in these complex numbers. If I do either z goes to z plus 1 or z goes to z plus i any number of times, the picture will look the same. Of course, eventually you get to the edge of Iowa, but you get to Kansas, I guess, but I, I'm not sure. But anyway, um, it does change eventually. But in, in, in an ideal world, it would just go on forever. So Klein was really interested in things that didn't change when you had sets of symmetries. And he was interested in various different collections of mappings. Among them were Mobius maps, a very obvious thing. So if I've not got ordinary Euclidean symmetry, and this picture's gone a little bit too fast for me, on the left, we've done Euclidean translation. On the right, we're doing the analog under a certain Mobius map. So we're clunk, 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 applying a Mobius map, a particular map. See if I can make that play again. Uh, let's see. This may be dangerous. Let's see if we can do it. Yeah, there we go. Right. So we're applying a Mobius map over and over again to Dr. Stickler. And he just marches on and on, but instead of going on forever in a straight line, as you can see, he gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and he kind of looks like he's disappearing into some black hole. It's called a sink. If you did the thing backwards, the analog of translating to the left, then he would go round to the back. Ah, oh, there we are. He does that. Right, there you go. So he's going backwards um, in the other direction, and, well, he'll disappear there, but you could alternatively think of that as the source. So Mobius maps are not quite like Euclidean ones because they have a, typically they have a source and a sink. So I want to, so before I go on, Klein's interest was what happens if you take a small number of when we looked at Iowa, we took two translations. We took translating to the right and translating up, and we did them over and over again, and we got a nice symmetrical picture. So Klein's idea was, what happens if we take two Mobius maps? We just saw what happened if we did one of them over and over again. That already is quite interesting, but it's not that hard to work out. What happens if we take two of them and we repeat them over and over again? What kind of things will we get? What sort of symmetry pictures will we get? What will be unchanged when we do this repetition? So to understand that, we're first going to look at the effect of doing one Mobius map from a slightly different <coughs> viewpoint. So this time I'm calling my map, I'm changing notation a bit now, the map is going to be called little a. And there are two circles here. I start with two big circles called D sub capital A and D sub little a for a good reason that you'll see in a minute. 
And what little a does, it sort of has a source in there and a sink in there, and there are a whole lot of nested circles in here. So for example, little a will take the yellow circle here and push it out to be this big blue circle. And it will take this big blue disc and push it all the way out and around and sort of round the back of the screen, round the back of the picture, till it becomes all this white stuff, all the stuff that's outside D sub little a on the right. And if you do A again, it takes D sub little a and pushes it to be this inner yellow disc here, and then the yellow one gets pushed inside to the green one and things get pushed in and in. So on one side it pushes circles out, and on the other side it pushes circles in. So there I've written it. Sends the outside of one to the inside of the other. And really all you have to know is that maps, these maps send circles to circles. Well, this okay, may be kind of interesting, but what I'm going to do with it in a moment is much more interesting. So this is just saying what I uh, just told you, how this map operates. Here's a little bit of mathematics, if you like, why a fixed point of one of these maps is one which just stays put when you apply the map. So the formula says, take an input, do the formula, you get an output. Supposing the output is the same as the input, that means that the point you put in has to satisfy an equation where these are the coefficients of four numbers involved in defining this thing A. So if you make this equation, I'm sure you can see immediately, if you multiply it up, you'll get a quadratic equation. Quadratic equation has usually two solutions. Occasionally it just has one. Usually it has two solutions. And what are these two solutions? One is the sort of inside point of all these circles, and the other one is the inside point of all those circles. Right, so now we're really starting to get interesting. Now we're going to start with four circles. So this is where Klein's idea first um, kicks in. So we're going to have two pairs of circles. We're going to do what I did on the other. So let me remind you, here's the other little picture. I'm sort of going to have this picture, and then I'm going to take another pair of disks that are disjoint from the first pair, like as on, over there on the left, and I'm going to have map A, map B, and they're both going to behave as this one did, and I want to ask myself the question, what happens when I do these over and over again? So if these were just the Iowa maps, the translations to the right and up and down, we would get a sort of square thing repeated over and over again that we all know and understand. The question is what happens when we repeat this setup. And a bit of shorthand here, uh, because we were constantly drawing pictures and doing computer calculations, those of you who know a bit of um, maths will know what the inverse of a map is. It means the thing that does the backwards thing. So if you translate to the right is A, then translate to the left, undoing the effect is the inverse. So going one way is A and going back in the other direction, just unwinding what you did, we just use the capital letter. 
So that's just some notation, but you'll see I'm going to be using that a lot, so I better tell you what it is. So here we go. We've done this, and we're going to iterate. So what happens? I claim I get a picture like this. So how to explain that? Supposing we focus on one of the circles. Well, what did this little map A do? It took the outside of this circle and it pushed it to the inside of there. Now what do I see outside here? What I see outside here is I see one, two, three circles. Three disks, three red disks. So if I push everything that's outside this disk to the inside of this disk, then I'm going to push this circle, this one, and this one, all to the inside of there. So I'm going to, inside here, see three things. So these three things are what I see when I apply this mapping to these three circles. Okay? And same for all the others. If I push this to here, then that and that and that all get pushed <coughs> further inside. So instead of just piling up one family of nested circles, everywhere I see, inside every original circle, I see three more <coughs> of the next line. <coughs> so we don't need to get really tangled in the labeling, but there is, let me just say, there is a rule whereby we arrived at this labelling. If you actually study our book and you want to make computer programs, you really need to get to grips with what our rule is. But for tonight, all I need to say is, well, there is rhyme and reason as to why these yellow circles have got these labels on. The main thing to see is that the effect of doing all these four different things is to produce three further little circles inside each of the four original ones. There we are. So there's the same thing again. And now suppose I do the same thing over again. So we're going to translate again. We do like translate by two instead of by one. So what happens? Well, this picture, the big red disks have been missed out. We've just gone to the level of the sort of yellowy ones. But what happens in each side, each one of those? Well, the whole process repeats. So if at the first level, every big red circle got three yellowy ones inside it, then at the next level, each yellowy one will have three more inside it. So it's like, you know, when I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives, and each wife had seven sacks, and each sack had seven cats. It's like that. So inside everything, there's three more. I do it again, and inside there, I've missed out, we've missed out the yellowy circles. There's three more, you can barely see it, and the labeling is getting very complicated, but like I say, there is a rhyme and a reason to it. So you just keep going and keep going. And so, instead of your nice picture of Iowa, suddenly you've got this rather complicated thing of circles inside circles inside circles. And then we just keep going. Just keep on and on and on. And you keep on, well, how long do you keep on? Well, if you're doing it on a computer, 
after a while, you aren't going to see the difference in the printout. So I already had to reduce the quality of this quite a lot to get it to work on the screen. So you keep going until you can't see the difference anymore. And you see circles inside circles inside circles. And this is a thing that Klein, and particularly his, his colleague Robert Fricker, understood that the <coughs> limit of all this process kind of what was left inside all the circles together when you'd done everything was going to be a really interesting mathematical object. And that's what they, I think it was really Fricker, initiated the study of this thing called the limit set of the iteration. So it was what you got if you kept on doing this process just over and over and over again, applying all these maps, A's and B's. And the thing is that what you get in the limit, because you've gone on infinitely long to produce the thing, if you go on one or two more times, it isn't going to make any difference. You'll still have the same thing. So it's like if the whole world is covered by identical Iowa farms, then you know it goes off to infinity. There's no boundary, so doing it a bit more doesn't make any difference. So just like this, the limit set is something which is invariant under this collection of mappings, which for those of you who know the terminology is called a group. So that's what Klein wanted to look at. So here I've said the collection of things which are iterated is called a group. I'm going to try and only say this word twice in today's lecture. If you read our book, we tell you a little bit what a, more what a group is. But we don't really need to understand it tonight. What I would like to show you is supposing we take a little patch on the picture like that, and we zoom in. Well, there we go. So there's the same picture there. A zoom into that bit there produces something that really looks qualitatively exactly the same. So you just zoom in and zoom in, and as you keep going in, you'll keep seeing the same thing repeated over and over and over again. Well, of course, Klein could draw this. He couldn't really so easily keep zooming in, but by computer, you can do it as much as you want. However, this is an amazing drawing. So I was actually in Göttingen last autumn, and the Library of Göttingen has a magnificent collection of mathematical books and also, uh, maybe I should call them implements, instruments for drawing mathematics, all sorts of things that models, beautiful models, wonderful things they've got. This is my attempt to photograph one of Klein's pictures. And as you can see, I mean, it's quite by chance. Maybe it's not quite by chance because David Wright did go to Göttingen. I don't know whether it's chance or not, but the color is almost the same. So the story is that Klein had an engineering draftsman in, in some of his lectures who drew these pictures. But the amount of computation and then the skill and care in, in drawing you know, this great big piece of paper. Wonderful pictures there. So this is what Klein wanted to study. And this is what in particular David Mumford said, hey, now we've got computers, wouldn't this be great? We can somehow program our computers to, um, to do this at will, and you know, it's going to be a whole lot easier than sitting and calculating it all by hand. This picture shows one of the things you can do 
if you bring the original four circles together, I, you probably can't quite see on here, but there are some other, the sort of image circles here are very faint, sort of slight yellowy color. But these circles, I think if I, yeah, Klein's picture is actually much clearer. So this is the picture I showed you at the beginning, made by Klein or under the direction of Klein. Here you can see we've got a circle here, and inside it we've got three white circles, and inside that we've got one, two, three more circles, and inside that we've got more circles. But this time all the circles are tangent to each other, they're not disjoint. And the effect of that is that this limit setting that you get at the end is not just a disjoint collection of points, actually it all joins up and it forms a continuous loop. So these kind of limit sets where everything touches and you get a nice loop like this are actually um, even more interesting, I would say, than the previous ones. And as you see, Klein was well aware of that they existed. So the first thing that Mumford and Wright were aiming to do was just set up a computer program where they could just systematically put in, input some starting data and churn out pictures. And this is what they did. So how did they do this? Well, you need to keep track of all these things that you need to keep repeating. So you needed, I had all these labels on the circles. Here's a way that you can arrange all these labels rather beautifully in a thing called the word tree, that some of you may have seen. And this word tree has a close relationship to actually what happens. You start with Dr. Stickler, at sort of corresponding to one, and you apply these various different maps to him, and what happens is he moves around, and this particular picture has been drawn so that the way that he moves is, can be kind of matched up with the paths on this tree. So every path you see on this tree corresponds to a sort of path of Dr. Stickler's. Of course, he gets very small, but he gets very tiny when you get towards the limit set, and that's always what happens. Things always shrink when you get to the limit set. So we can encode what we need to do in this word tree, and then what do we do? Well, actually, to plot the limit set, imagine you go very far out in this word tree, where the words are very long, and you just follow around those words, and you plot those image circles. I'm saying this very fast, but in our book it's explained in detail how to do this. And this is the kind of thing, so what we're doing is, we're going around the edge of the word tree, and we're plotting images of the first four circles under these various maps in order, and now we got the same picture as we had before. And here on the right is just showing you, I, I think it's somewhere around here, but I don't think you can really see it. There is a rectangle, and on the right, this is what happens when you zoom in, and you can see circles inside circles inside circles. This whole thing has been taken down to some really quite fine level, and that's the kind of thing you see. So this is the limit set that Klein was, this sort of thing here, is what Klein was really interested in studying. So 
and I want to skip on, skip ahead a bit. What Mumford and Wright did now was they said, well, okay, we can play around, but let's try and be a bit more systematic. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to start with two Mobius maps, A and B, of our choice, and we want to be able to put in those two maps and see the output limit set. But you don't really want to waste your time doing things which are really the same as the other. So for example, if you had a limit set and then you had another limit set which was the same except rotated by 90 degrees, well, you wouldn't really care. You wouldn't be seeing anything new, right? Or if it was expanded by a factor of two, it wouldn't be really new. So you want to get rid of all this kind of redundancy of extra information. So they called in grandma. Quite know why we called in grandma, but we called in grandma. And it turns out that if you want to make a limit set which joins up to make a loop, then you might think, you see, you might think I've got two A and B, and each of them were fractions which involved CZ plus D over EZ plus F. So each of these two things involved on the face of it four complex numbers. And that would be eight complex numbers altogether, and that's an awful lot. And, you know, if you've got eight complex numbers, that's 16 real numbers, and how are you ever going to have a hope of exploring that? That's going to be huge. So grandma's recipe actually says, if you go through the mathematics, which is explained here for anyone who can read fast and who's expert enough to know what I'm talking about, if you kind of take the coordinate system right, you choose a coordinate system so you factor out the fact that you don't care about rotating and translating and stuff like that, and you factor out something else that says that you want the limit set to join out up to be a loop, actually, out of all these um, eight complex numbers, actually you only need two. And those two numbers are, for those who know, they're the sum of the diagonal entries in the CZ plus D over EZ plus F. They're called the trace of the transformation. And I'm going to call them T sub A and T sub B because that's what we call them. T is for trace. But it's a number that, given the Möbius map, you can just immediately write down a complex number TA and a complex number TB. And Grandma's recipe was a formula that said, if you give me TA and TB, I'll tell you how to draw a limit set arranged in a particular coordinate system in a particular way so that if you take different values, you'll be drawing a different limit set, really different. And I don't want to show you the recipe. It's a mess, but it's written there in the book. It's, it's kind of a mess, but you can do it on the computer. And so now what I'm going to show you is just some of what comes out. So now we're really going beyond Klein because now really you can start just messing around changing the variable, if you like, and seeing what comes out. So here are some of the first sort of pictures that come out. And these pictures, you can see the vestige, these lines inside are like the sort of vestige of um, the original circles. Here are the parameter values. So there's plug in two complex numbers, and out you come with something. So David Wright, in particular, I mean, this was very, very exciting. If you think back to the early 80s, 
I mean, computers were really the, the ability to draw stuff, not maybe on a screen, but to plot it on a piece of paper was a very new thing that you could, you know, make your own little program and do that. And they started coming out with these things and they got tremendously excited. Maybe not with these ones, but if I go a bit further, here are some interesting ones. We started there with some reason it started being a circle. Here are the numbers that could be complex are real. Now I'm just reducing the real value, reducing it, and suddenly, plonk, I come to this. And this is a completely new kind of thing. I've, somehow the things that were just a loop like this, lots of points have come together. The process from here to here is surely something interesting um, to follow. How do I get from here to here by decreasing this, or sorry, this one to this one? You can see a little bit on the way that this is forming and then this thing formed. They got extremely, I wasn't at this point involved in this at all, but they got very fascinated by drawing all these pictures. Here are some more things. In these ones, you can see the second parameter is always the same. And actually, if you look, the first parameter, they're quite close. Two plus, they're always 0.05i, two, 1.889, 1.88. And somehow this one looks kind of interesting. This one's getting very interesting. We've got lots of circles appearing here. And this one, something funny has happened. Actually, this doesn't look too bad. It looks as if you might be getting a nice picture. But if you actually watch the machine plotting this, you'd get worried because remember I said you were meant to go around the word tree <coughs> plotting something. If you watch the machine, if you did that on this one, I'll show you a movie in a minute, you'll see how it works. If I did this one, the pointer that's plotting, the head of the pointer, starts jumping around all over the place. And something's not working right at all. So something from here to here went seriously wrong. So here is a picture made a bit later on. What happens? when you vary the input parameters. Of course, he's cleverly uh, known what would give a nice picture, but let's just do that again. There we go. So what's happening here is the TA and TB are being varied in a continuous way, and you get something pretty nice. Another one, oops, sorry. Right, this is showing you on the right, there's a very interesting picture. And Mumford and Wright got fascinated by pictures like this, and you can see why this is how this picture gets made. So we're going around the edge of the word tree in a certain order, and look what a complicated thing it's doing. And actually, this is about the time I began to get involved in this, because Various pictures like this spread around the world of mathematics, and my colleague David Epstein had a picture very like this, or several of them stuck on his wall. And I thought that obviously somebody must understand about all about what these pictures were and what all these white circles were doing and so on and so on. And I started asking around. And it became clear that actually nobody really did understand very much. Of course, they understood a bit. They understood how the pictures had been made, but they didn't really understand what all these circles were about. And with Linda Keane, 
I started working on trying to understand this, got very involved in the mathematics of it, but also, at some point not long after that, got a message from Mumford and Wright that they wanted to write a book where they just really sort of coffee table book showing off all these beautiful pictures and they weren't getting very far writing it because every time they met up to write it all they ever did was make more pictures <laughs> so they sort of needed someone to help them write it I joined in with them banged heads together a bit and ten years later the book appeared um, so in the course of their explorations, they found at least, well, they found a lot of interesting things, but let me focus on two of them. So one of them was cases where the algorithm that they had just goes wrong. So instead of tracing around some reasonable curve, the plotter just starts jumping around, everything seems to go haywire, and if you go on for long enough, it just gets more and more of a mess and you don't see any pattern. And so this is something actually which is understood mathematically. There's no reason you should really get a nice result. It's maybe more interesting you do get a nice result, but when you get a, a mess, it's called non-discrete. Of course, there's a mathematical definition of what non-discrete is, but um, you... There's, there's a word for a mess, and you can get a mess. The other thing is that they got really involved in was these cases when, instead of the limit set being just a curve, <coughs> suddenly all these extra became a curve with lots of pinch points, and all these extra circles appeared, and there seemed to be no end to all the beautiful patterns they could produce. And later on in our book, actually I'll come to it in just a moment, they began to see some sense and mathematical meaning behind all these patterns. So later on in the book, um, we begin to explore some of that. And, well, here's the name for it. If, if the limit set isn't everything, so if you get a reasonable picture, then we call the iteration discrete. And actually, the collection of all these maps is called a Kleinian group. There's a whole story about this, but Klein actually was very unhappy about it being called a Kleinian group for complicated historical reasons. So Poincaré called it a Kleinian group, and the name has stuck. Um, anyway, so I'm now going on to the, just the end of the talk, um, the further things. Now, these were really new discoveries that they made. Uh, Mumford had some idea of a little bit of theory behind some of this that had been developed by a very powerful mathematician called Lipman Bears in the 60s. Some hints as to, the question is where is this transition between this kind and this kind? And it turns out that this is an incredibly delicate thing. So you, you're plugging in your TAs and your TBs, trying to be systematic. David Wright called it doing probes. You maybe fix T, TB, here we fix TB equals 3, and you very slowly vary TA, and for each value you do a plot of the limit set, and you look and see is it discrete or not. And the difference between the two things is very complicated and very, very delicate. 
So here is a picture which, after a lot of experimentation, Mumford and Wright managed to find the boundary of actually this picture, experimentally. And what the picture is, we fixed TB, we just picked a value, 3, and we coloured points. So this picture represents the value of TA. This is the, what's called the parameter plane now. So we're no longer looking at limit sets, we're looking at the input parameter in grandma's recipe. And the, we colour a point if when we make the limit set, we get a discrete group, a Kleinian group. And we leave it grey if when we plug it in, we don't get a discrete group, we get a mess. Now, of course, that's not really a very mathematical thing to say. You could have a lot of interesting discussion about what exactly do I mean by that, but morally, that's what this picture is. Maybe it's a bit fuzzy around the edges here, but so I said it's very delicate, and in fact, you could get very interested in what this boundary is like, and David Wright developed ways of zooming in to the boundary. So somewhere around about here, the lowest point here, he's done a zoom in, and you hardly see that he's zoomed in at all. And here is a much higher resolution. So this and this are actually significantly by like a factor of 100 or so, zooming in to the previous thing, and actually what you see looks remarkably like what you had before. So you need some pretty accurate computations to do this, but this boundary here looks like it's some kind of fractal. Well, nobody actually has really proved this yet, although I, have, I had a student a few years ago who studied it in great detail and proved some interesting things about how it spirals around and it's sort of fine structure, but still there are unanswered questions here. Here is a picture which maybe shows you a bit better what's going on. So same picture, T, TB is 3 and the coloured region is the same, but here are inset different limit sets. So for these different TA values, you're seeing what the limit set would be. And actually what Mumford and Wright discovered was based on these ideas of bears when you kind of made it concrete in some special case, that actually for each fraction, P over Q, there is a certain pattern of circles and a certain limit set belonging to a group right on the boundary of this coloured region with that particular pattern. So here's the three-fifths pattern and, well, there are six big circles there, and six is one more than five, and there's maybe two bends, I don't know. Here there's probably, four, five, six, seven. so there are nine circles there, and eight, nine is one more than eight. So there is some kind of geometry going on that uh, along the boundary here, for every rational number arranged in order along the boundary, there seems to be a special limit set with a special pattern of these circles um, in exactly the right place. Well, sorry, so let's, yeah. So what I wanted to say here is, that's what they discovered. They did it experimentally. They couldn't prove more than a bit of it, 
they made a lot of conjectures. Actually, these pictures inspired someone called Yair Minsky, who's a very powerful uh, American mathematician, to actually go ahead and really prove that along the boundary here, really for each, well, it's not so hard to prove that for each rational number there's exactly one, but in between the rationals there are irrationals, and for each irrational number there's exactly one point on the boundary here, and that has led to a whole enormous uh, piece of mathematics that's been incredibly influential in the last years, something called the ending lamination conjecture. And I think that, that these kind of pictures were Minsky's first hints of what would be going on and how he might begin to attack this problem. This is a little bit of a contribution made by myself and Linda Keane. So what we discovered is not only on the boundary is there one of these groups with a special pattern of tangent circles, but there are lots of rays, and up each ray, all the points on this ray, all the limit sets, have kind of the same pattern of circles. They just overlap by different amounts, and the angles change. So that has led me on to a lot more mathematics, which I and my students have been working on of quite some years now. I've got a student now who's um, more or less succeeded in drawing the analogue of this picture in, in higher dimensions, which is something which I wanted to see for a long time. So somehow working on this has really all I want to say has led on to a lot of further serious mathematics. It wouldn't have happened if Mumford and Wright hadn't just embarked on their curiosity-driven experiment. Really, to understand all this, you need to go into a subject called non-three-dimensional non-Euclidean geometry. It took me some time to understand that, but you really have to do this. And here is just one picture to show you that things are really much more complicated. Here is TB equals 3, the parameter slice. That's the picture we've just seen turned on its side. There's another one here for kind of reasons of symmetry. Just think about this half is what we've just seen. But supposing I did TB equals 7, the picture changes. By the time I do TB equals 100, it's really changed. And by the time it gets to TB equals 1,000, it's kind of gone wild. And there are some really, really interesting pictures out there that particularly Yasuzi Yamashita, who's an extremely good, he's a mathematician, but he's an extremely good programmer as well, he has done some fantastic pictures with different algorithms to find about this sort of discrete, non-discrete question. There's lots of things out there that aren't really understood. Anyway, I thought I'd end with uh, not just mathematics. So other people have gone off in different directions. Joss Lees is a wonderful graphics artist who's done lots of elaborations of our pictures. He's got a really nice website with lots of pictures like this. Uh, we were approached not very long ago as to whether one of our, by someone in a little Buddhist group in California, I haven't told you why we called our book Indra's Pearl, so I'll tell you on the next slide. But we were approached, could they use one of our pictures on their cover of their um, publication about their Buddhist precepts? And uh, an artist, you see the background of this picture is somehow inspired by our circles. 
There is a beautiful website, which I can't, unfortunately, access now, but if you're interested in doing some of this for yourself, quite recently, <coughs> this person, Richter Gerbert, has made a most beautiful website where you can actually interactively explore all this stuff for yourself. You can plug in different values of TA and TB and see what comes out. <coughs> so if you want to find it, you just Google for Indra's pearls, but if you put in the word Cinderella as well, you'll find it, I'm sure, straight off. So this is a really nice website. Unfortunately, some of it's written in German, but the mathematics is the mathematics, so you can work it anyway. So. Um, I've missed out explaining why we called our book Indra's Pearls. The reason is there is an old myth in Buddhism, a particular school of Buddhism, uh, which I came across, this about the heaven of the god Indra. So there's said to be a shimmering net, finer than a spider's web, stretching to the outermost reaches of space. And at the intersection of each thread is a reflecting pearl. And the point is that in the surface of each pearl are reflected all the other pearls, even those in the furthest corners of the heavens. And in each reflection, again, you see infinitely many other pearls reflected. And so on and so on and so on continue without end. And isn't that just a perfect analogy for this original circles inside circles inside circles. And if you look in this, the particular Buddhist um, school of Buddhism, the, the sutra associated to the, this particular school of Buddhism, the idea of infinity being things within things within things within things repeated over and over is just all the way through the book and it just seems a perfect foretaste of the mathematics that we were writing about. So that's why we call the book Indra's Pearls. I just want to end with a, another, one more movie. Very simple parameter values. This thing called the Apollonian gasket is made normally a circle, two tangent circles, fit a circle in the sort of triangular hole, fit another circle in the triangular hole, fit another circle in the triangular hole, keep going and going and going. But if you do our algorithm, and let it run with these parameter values, you discover that you are, you can see, you're tracing out exactly the thing that you would get if you did this procedure over and over again. While it's going, let me just say that when I was looking on the web recently, I found a picture that I'm absolutely sure is a picture. I wanted a different picture of the gasket than one we've done. The only ones I could find were the ones that we'd done and I found one that was copyrighted to somebody last year, copyrighted from a book, but it wasn't our book, so the web is a strange place. So. Anyway, um, I think that's a good place to end. So there we are. Thank you very much for listening. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.